Okay, uh, this is the Coach Haas Podcast, sponsored by Sports Rehab PA, and also by Buy Optimizers. Mike, tell us about Buy Optimizers. All right, Buy Optimizers. So uh, the number one product I like to use by them is the Masszyme. So it's a digestive enzyme. Helps you to get the most out of your food. So protein, carbs. Um, I like to use three of the tabs is how they recommend it. You know, three with each meal, but everybody's body is different depending on how much you're eating. Uh, you take them throughout the day before the meals and it helps to get the most out of what you're eating. So if you're a high-end athlete or a reactive person, you're getting in a lot of protein, carbohydrates, big meals, um, or even if you're on vacation and you're eating a lot of different types of food, you want to keep your digestive tract in order. Um, the Masszymes helps to break everything down, makes it digest a little smoother, uh, decrease bloating, gas, discomfort, uh, basically getting the most out of your food. Food today is a little bit more processed, so it's harder to break down. Um, I have had some great effects from using them. You feel a little more energized. Body feels a little better after eating. Joe, I know you liked them, and then I've recommended some other people, and they really have good things to say about them. Uh, they also have a uh, um, another uh, enzyme, like a probiotic, the P3OM, which is good. You can mix in with the mass signs. It's pretty good. But uh, those are the two products I like to use. Uh, and if you use uh, Juicy at checkout, you get 10% off. So check them nice. out. Nice. Yes. Literally been a lifesaver for me. Uh, other than the guy that we're having on tonight, the podcast, <laughs> my, my other lifesaver, um, which is ironic, right? Um, I'll get into a little backstory here. So Dr. Seward's who we're having on tonight, uh, him and I met a few years ago, I believe it was through his daughter coming in to the gym for some care. And then I found out that her dad was a surgeon. Then I found out the kicker, he's a Navy orthopedic surgeon. So long story short, you know, uh, I've had some knee issues over the last couple of years, tore my meniscus, we did some rehab. Uh, it worked for a little while and then it just kind of went back. Um, and Dr. Sewards was there. He knew the system. He knew how to get me through and help me out through my VA benefits. Uh, super appreciative. So back in March, March 18th, uh, I had my meniscus repaired by Dr. Sewards, who we have on tonight. And uh, so we'll talk about my surgery specifically. Uh, and then we'll also talk, obviously, some ACL stuff. And then we have some questions that, that have been burning through parents asking us questions, through athletes asking us questions lately. So... Uh, without any further ado, I want to introduce tonight's guest, and that is Dr. Sewards from Temple Health. Doctor, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, very happy to be here. This is pretty cool, man. So we talked about this a few weeks ago when I was in uh, for my follow-up, and um, we tried to do this last week. Thunderstorms ruined it, and uh, that's that's been the, you know, the joke all week, but we're happy to have you on this week. And um, so... How we always bring everybody on, I, you know, part of this is, is the curiosity that, that um, the reason why I'm doing the podcast. So take us back to the very beginning of, you know, how you got started into this, a little bit about your career and kind of where you are now. Sure. So uh, just in terms of how I got started on the idea of, uh, you know, I was going to become a doctor, become an orthopedic surgeon, I, you know. I, I grew up uh, as an athlete in, a, in an athletic family. My, my dad was an orthopedic surgeon who had trained at Temple. And so that's how I knew about Temple. And, and so I grew up 
sort of splitting time uh, between Philadelphia when my dad was a resident uh, at Temple. And then we moved to Allentown, which is where my family is originally from. Um, but again, you know, kind of playing <laughs> football, basketball. Uh, I, I played baseball, but then uh, was convinced by one of my football coaches that I probably was better throwing the javelin uh, than I was on a baseball field. And so I wound up doing that. And then uh, of all things, kind of playing around during track practice, I wound up high jumping. As well. uh, and so just, it, it gave me a good background to, you know, cross training and the idea of, uh, you know, just overall fitness might not be the right term, but the idea of performance training that, you know, what I did as a high jumper, what I did as a javelin thrower, <laughs> had crossover to what I did as a football and basketball player. Um, and then, uh, you know, looking at where I was going to college, I wound up getting into a, an accelerated six-year program to go to, you know, college and then medical school. Um, did that and just sort of gravitated towards the idea of doing orthopedic surgery and sports medicine. Uh, and it, it was this sense of, all right, I, I understand the patients in a sports medicine practice. I've been there. I've seen, you know, not only have I done that, but I've seen members of my family do that and, yeah. and, and friends of mine who, you know, are concerned about their performance. And, uh, and, you know, people ask me all the time, well, what was it about orthopedic surgery? And to me, it was, you're taking high level individuals and getting them back to a high level. And so it's, there's a lot of accountability in that. Uh, and I, I love it. Uh, so that's, that's what got me into it. And then, you know, then, then it came down to, uh, I was going to do orthopedic surgery. I had done a, a Navy scholarship for medical school. And, you know, the thing about the military is if you're not in active combat, military orthopedic surgery is really sports medicine, just in yep. a little variation. Yep. And so, uh, my time on active duty in the military and the Navy was, uh, I was assigned to Beaufort Naval Hospital down in South Carolina. Uh, we took care of the Marine recruits of Paris Island and in a recruit training setting, it's, it's knee injuries, ACL tears, shoulder dislocations. It's, you know, I did some fractures and some uh, hand surgery, but the majority of it was sports medicine. And so I, I was hooked. Uh, I had the opportunity to come back to Philadelphia, come back to Temple and do sports medicine. And uh, it's been, it's been 13 years since I, I went down that path. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Are there um, advantages with the military? Do they have certain techniques or um, accessibility to more advanced procedures or maybe types of uh, tools and instruments that you could learn on or use? You know, attention. I wouldn't say that they have the more advanced techniques, you know, that, that like say civilian orthopedic surgeons don't have, but there is, there's an expectation of a return to a certain level of performance. Uh, and so then, you know, and that's just speaking in the general uh, population of the military. So again, I, I worked a lot with Marines, not just the Marines of Paris Island, but the, the Marines at the, the air station in, in Beaufort. And so, you know, there's, there's sort of an expectation of, of what they're going to get back to physically. On top of that, I've had some experience with uh, some of the Naval Special Operations uh, personnel and, and that's a whole different uh, ballgame. You know, they, they in the last 20 years, let's say, uh, they've really taken on this sense of, of you know, they are warrior athletes. Yeah. Uh, and so they've brought in athletic trainers. They've brought in 
uh, strength and conditioning coaches, yeah. and they really treated a lot of the naval special warfare uh, operators as elite athletes, which yeah. they absolutely are. Yeah. Um, I, I really, I, I didn't get very much into that, but I've had some interaction with them in the sense of, okay, you know, here's what they need to get back to. Here's what you need to consider when it comes to surgery, when it comes to rehabilitation. And, and I got to be honest, that informed a lot of my practice when I then transitioned into the civilian sector of, okay, you know, I need to consider more than just what I'm doing in an operating room. I'm familiar with what you're talking about because there's a podcast that Joe and I like. It's very popular. It's called the Shrug Collective. We're always plugging them on here because they bring on some really great guests. It's a whole fitness podcast. Um, and they bring on everyone from like surgeons to, I don't know, are you familiar with it, Dr. Sewards? Yeah, I've, I've, I haven't uh, subscribed to it, but I, I'm about to. I, You know, the problem is I hear all these great podcasts. And so I want yeah, to subscribe yeah. to this one and that one. And right. I, well, I, gotta catch up. I, have, I have to correct Mike. It is now called the Barbell Shrugged, I believe. Barbell Shrug. Well, yeah. it's hosted by Anders Doug and then um, yeah. Yeah. Travis Mash, who's the USA Olympic powerlifting coach. And they do bring on a lot of guys who are doing what you're talking about, um, special operations, special warfare. And they're talking about the training they're doing with these guys because the old training, the push-ups, pull-ups, run a mile is not translating. I mean, these guys have to do more high-intensity stuff, almost like these high-intensity workouts, CrossFit-style stuff, stuff with weighted vests you know, things that are really challenging them. And then they're using um, the new technology to monitor their recovery, their nutrition, all that, because that's what these guys have to do. I mean, they're under insane pressure. Um, and that movement and fitness really translates to what they're doing, you know? Um, so again, like what you said, you know, looking at the, the translation of the type of training they're doing, it's, it's totally different than like the World War II style training. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I had the, the good fortune of, uh, I, I was deployed to, uh, the Horn of Africa in uh, early 2000s. And uh, it was right about when CrossFit was starting to catch on. And I, I wasn't necessarily familiar with it. And, you know, we had a tremendous gym on our base in, in Djibouti. And, I you know, I'd go work out. I'd do your traditional, you know, I'm going to go do chest today. I'm going to go do back the next day. Yeah. I'm going to do squats and deadlifts and stuff. And uh, we had a, 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 what I would consider a good friend who is the, the flight doc and you know, special operations doctor for the, uh, for our special operations component that was in a separate part of the base. And, you know, he and I had a lot of conversations about what it takes to, to, you know, get to that level and to do those types of things. He said, why don't you come on over? Why don't you work out with our guys? So I went over to that side of the base and they had their gym. I walk in and it's, uh, you know, it's like a pull-up bar, uh, a rope to climb uh, some, some some leather med balls yeah and, and you know and i'm looking at some kettlebells and, and to me that was a, a foreign concept i thought yeah. all right well let's see what this is about and man they crushed me uh, <laughs> outstanding but you know it led to a lot of conversations about crossfit and the ideas of crossfit and then uh i i sort of went down the rabbit hole of uh, okay, you know, what does that do when, when you're injured? How do you adapt these workouts? And, and what does that do? Uh, and it really, I, I wound up, you know, expanding my horizons is, is probably how I would put it, that uh, instead of sort of your traditional workouts, your traditional rehab, uh, it, it led me to this, you know, basically functional training kind of concept. Does that change the way that you operate? It doesn't necessarily change what I do in the operating room, but it changes my concept of what happens afterwards. 
as far as the protocol that you want to see? Yeah, you know, it, 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 it has made me think a lot more carefully about, you know, what restrictions we place after a surgery and why, uh, what you can do to, to get around some of those restrictions. And, and I don't mean that in the sense of like, you know, like you're trying to get away with something. Right. But the idea that, okay, protect what you need to protect, but build what you can, when you can, where you can. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I have patients ask me all the time, like, hey, hey, doc, can I still do this? Can I still do that? Yeah. Amen. Do that. You know, uh, you know, my, my perspective of it is, especially for some of the elite athletes, if you go back and you work out and you're not affecting whatever extremity I operated on, you've got circulating growth hormone, you've got circulating testosterone, you're going to heal things faster because you're working on other things. Uh, and so I, I've, I've tried to push a lot of my patients in that direction. So I, this, okay, my, I was yeah. going to say, this kind of segues into something that we're eventually going to get into, but this is yeah. a great point because you said working on other things. So I just took blood flow restriction, continuing a course. I took it with uh, Dr. Trent Nestler. We're actually bringing him on the podcast. And, um, you know, he's been in the field. He has a tremendous resume. He's worked with some of the best, Kevin Wilk, all those guys. Yep. And uh, the blood flow is producing some really great research, but there are research articles that came out, even in the journal of uh, sports medicine, he highlighted that said it doesn't work, but that's because the parameters they used were not the way it's supposed to be used. So, you know, you see these titles and it's better to look deeper into it, but if used properly, it is showing that it can have some great benefits and it sounds scary, but I had the straps and I've been playing around with them and uh, it's really interesting stuff. Um, so Speaking of working on what you can, I'm thinking of, you know, some of these kids that come in, they're extremely weak. They can't get that quad going. You could use some blood flow with the stim. We could do some leg raises. We could even do like when they get appropriate for mini squats, let's strap on a blood flow strap and you could, uh, you know, adjust the, you know, the uh, limb occlusion pressure. There's ways to test that and doing stuff. Um, are you, you know, what, what's your take on that? Have you, have you looked into it? Are you, are you seeing anyone use it? Yeah, I, I, so I'll admit to you guys that when, when it was first proposed to me, and, and I, I'm thinking about this, uh, it was probably about five or six years ago, our athletic trainer for, for football for Temple had, had mentioned, hey, what do you think about blood flow restriction? And at the time, I thought, well, that sounds insane. Like that sounds like that's really going to be a problem. Very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're going to, you're going to put a tourniquet on somebody and uh, we're going to. And we know what a tourniquet is used for, right? When we hear tourniquet, we think, okay, a limb is coming off. Right. 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 And so, uh, you know, I kind of, I, I would say I blew it off at the time, Um, you know, and then again, different experiences, looking at some research, uh, I, I deployed to Iraq in the meantime, and uh, of all things, we had a, a, a surgeon who his role in Iraq was as a trauma surgeon, but he happens to do vascular surgery, and, and he was a, a you know, fitness fanatic. He and I lifted every day, and, and I'm not a small guy. He was, but muscular, and he, he beat me up uh, uh, every day, and wow. I loved it. Uh, but you know, it, it got to a point where I started having a little bit of shoulder problems, and, you know, was trying to do some things I probably shouldn't have been doing. Uh, and he said, hey, listen, why don't we try this thing? He had some of the, you know, high, high uh, tension uh, straps. So we did some, some essentially makeshift BFR type of things. And it worked pretty well. And so it made me look more into it. 
I, I got back to the States, kind of looked into more of the research. I've seen it used more in therapy settings. And to see what it does, uh, you know, I would say, I, I don't know that I would say oh, I'm all in on it, but I, I would say, you know, it seems like I probably should have been more receptive to it and it does have its benefits. And, and I, I'm open to looking at what research comes down the pike with it. You know, all research, I, I look at a lot of it very critically, uh, as you point out, you know, it, are you doing the right duration? Are you doing the right pressure? You know, what's the concept behind it? Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've tried to dive into that and I've seen where it really does have substantial benefit. You know, my perspective of it as a surgeon is I look at, you know, let's take an ACL reconstruction. We know that there's a lot of muscular atrophy after an ACL reconstruction, a lot of muscular atrophy, a lot of quadriceps atrophy. And so the idea that if you can either stall the atrophy, reverse it, you know, whatever you can do, uh, I, I, I've, I've become more of a, uh, again, I don't know that I would say I'm an absolute believer, but, uh, uh, at least interested in it and I've seen it have some substantial benefits. Yeah. I mean, currently, uh, Trent said he's looking at, he's involved in research where they are going to do it and see if it can restore blood flow to the ACL earlier. Um, and that would be some really, really cool findings to see that. Um, and again, you're right. It has to be the parameters looking at, you know, because it varies occlusion pressure versus resistance. You're usually doing 20, 30% of the one RM, whatever it might be. Um, you have to look at, you know, are these straps that fully occlude versus mild, you know, ones that don't fully occlude. And you got to write everything down, the parameters and what they are and look to see, you know, what are the sets? What are the reps? What are we doing? Um, but even for athletic performance, they're showing something. So if someone's lifting really heavy, and then they want to train and get a stimulus the next day, you could do lighter loads and do stuff with that and get the same type of benefit. Um, especially even if you're feeling a little beat up, I guess the IGF and the testosterone release that it produces um, can be beneficial. But the one thing I think of is a couple of weeks ago, I watched a documentary on Ronnie Coleman and the guy just completely destroyed himself from trying to let him. He was trying to go for a uh, 800 pound squat five times, you know, and the poor guy's on loft strand crutches now. And I'm thinking he was doing bodybuilding. So could some of that trade-off be people that are looking for performance? If you're looking for muscle definition, hypertrophy, you know, um, can we do a heavy day and then repeat stuff or, or superset with BFR going into the future now and get the same stimulus of looking good without completely crushing herself. I mean, if you're, if you're a power lifter, that's one thing. If you're getting rated on the amount of weight you can move. It's different. But, you know, for a bodybuilding or even just for some of these performance measures where you want to get that extra stimulus in and training and not completely crush your body, I'm really excited to see, like, where this can go if it's something that you can implement. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a matter of, you know, critically looking at the research that comes out from it uh, and, uh, you know, trying to utilize it in clinical practice. Nice. The, um, I'm going right into this question because this has been burning for the last day and a half. Uh, I want to bring a case like study, a case scenario to you here that just recently happened without throwing anybody under the bus here, which we'll is used, you know, no, no names or anything. But uh, I recently had a, uh, a, a patient slash client that's coming in. She's about 16, 17 weeks post-op. She's seeing physical therapy elsewhere. And she's also in with, um, you know, she still sees the surgeon. They are, or she is um, still experiencing pain doing 
minimal movements, um, split squat, still pain there. Um, they're basically at the 16 week mark now and where they should be running, okay? I expressed to the physical therapist that I felt as though that there was still some things that should be done prior to her running. So then I got a little bit of pushback from that because um, they explained that the bio index was, I see him smiling already, was, was still, at the, uh, still at a deficit. So, but even though there was a deficit and even though there was pain, because they were at the 16 week mark, they were progressing forward with the running. I was against that. I, I, and, and, I, and, I, and I felt like I got, you know, uh, maybe I, I rubbed them the wrong way because I just challenged them, the physical therapist on some of the questions and why. So can you kind of answer that for me? Yeah, I, so my personal take on that is, you know, you, you got to look at things as um, should we be progressing in a time-based fashion or in a criteria-based fashion? And, you know, I think there are a lot of people that push for criteria-based fashion to be able to accelerate their recovery. Uh, and, and my only uh, misgiving with that is if you look at the timing, if you look at the basic science of remodeling of an ACL graft, and you say, all right, if we're going to go by criteria basis, you might have athletes that you would release to play at six months. But if you look at the basic science, we know that at six months, the graft is probably not mature enough to take the physiologic loads of a return to sport. So you get a lot of, you know, you get a lot of people that might say, oh, you get back to playing at six months. Well, that might not be in the best interest of the athlete. They might think, oh, yep, six months, I want to go back. And they might feel like it. But if the graft isn't ready and you're going to put them at their load that it could potentially re-rupture it, you want to make sure that that graft is mature enough. And usually that's nine months to a year. So in that sense, I, I do like the time-based criteria. But for criteria basis, I, I think, you know, the idea of slowing it down or looking at are they ready for what you're trying to do? So, yeah, I mean, my perspective is I like to get them on a jogging program at three months. But if they're not ready for it, why push that? Right. You know, it may generate more pain. And then you get pain inhibition of the quadriceps. So, and, and then you get a lack of confidence from the athlete, from the patient. So my, my thought on that is, if you can figure out the source of the pain, if you can figure out the source of, you know, whether it's a lack of motion or a lack of strength or whatever it is, you know, address that and, and try to get that early on so that you can progress then to where you expect to be at three months, four months, five months. You know, I, I tell my patients from a time standpoint, you know, expect that at three months, you might start a jogging program. At four months, you might be able to start some simple agilities. At five months, a little bit more agility. At six months, maybe some sports specific drills, but non-live, non non-contact. Right. Seven to eight months is where you're starting to incorporate more of like, you know, I'll use the basketball analogy maybe a, a two on two, three on three. And at nine months is where you're looking at more of the live, you know, full practice and release to sport. But I think you do have to be careful to make sure that at each step along the way, they're not having pain. They're not having an effusion or, you know, fluid in the joint. Right. They're, they're not having signs that they're not tolerating what you're trying to get them to do. If they are having those signs, then you, you might be pushing them too hard 
And in doing that, you jeopardize their surgery, you jeopardize the timeline and their return to sport. And so I, I, I it, it is a bit of a balance. You got to try yeah. to finesse when you push them and when you say, all right, listen to what your body's telling you. All right. Now you're talking about it three months when you're having them running. The other piece of that question I have, and I think I asked this last year, Mike, when we had uh, one of the other surgeons on, running compared to jumping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to see them jump and land proper before running? So yeah, if you look at, at single plane jumping, right, you want to make sure that their landing pattern is correct. And you want to make sure that they're comfortable in doing it. You can look at things like a repetitive hop test. Uh, I tend not to do the progressive three hop test that early. Um, and you know, when you look at whether those tests really uh, effectively determine when they're ready to progress to different things. There's a little bit of controversy there. Uh, so, I mean, to keep it in a very simplistic sense, I think you can look at, you know, what does it take to be able to do a repetitive hop? Should they be at 70% of strength compared to their opposite limb? 80% of strength. Like when is it safe to jog? Is it should, same thing. Should it be about roughly 75% strength? Maybe they should certainly be able to have some hip and core control to be able to do a single leg gait, which is what jogging or running would, would entail. So yeah, there, there's some detail to that, that, you know, I, I try not to get too much into the weeds and try to micromanage as the surgeon. Right. But I try to be collaborative with the physical therapist. And if they are working with a performance or strength and conditioning coach to, to say, look, you guys know what you do. I know what I do. And I know a lot about what you do, but I'm also not really getting into the weeds like you guys are with certain things. So if you are comfortable with being able to progress and you're confident in it, then, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the leeway to say, all right, I'll, I'll trust that. Right. Uh, as long as, as, long as we can come back and justify what we're, what we're saying to you. Correct. Correct. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that's what we, Mike and I had talked about. Yeah. And yeah, I like, Mike. I like what you said there because what we're experiencing is, you know, we'll get a kid coming off any type of injury, patella dislocation, meniscus, ACL, anything. We're working with them. I'm working with them two, three times a week, doing the, you know, everything with them. And then they go back and they see the surgeon at maybe the four month timeline. And um, that individual doesn't even assess anything, just sees how they're doing, asks how they're feeling, and says, okay, try running. Um, so, I need to have a conversation with that athlete and with the parents because they hear that they're good to run from the surgeon. And as a PT, I know that this is a, like a double red flag because we haven't even done, they haven't demonstrated any of the foundational stuff to do that yet. And I need to explain, well, why would the surgeon say that? And I want to be respectful of another profession, but to me, it just doesn't make sense. I have to call it like it is. I'm like, where is he coming up with those or what he do to come to that determination? Because I'm going to do everything to become to that determination and say, well, X, Y, and Z need to be demonstrated before we do that. So such as talking about single leg stance pattern, we got to make sure we have the full mobility and stability. And then we have to look at not only can you execute those movement patterns, what happens with uh, external stimulus. So velocity load, just more stuff coming out, showing that not only do these, uh, injuries happen with the movement, but it's also the velocity. So, okay, you could do a single leg squat, but now it happens if you do it really fast or under fatigue, you know? So there's those measures there. And then um, we're not even really able to get to that point with some of these kids because they're so under the mark. That's like you said, you know, the time-based criteria. So 
Um, I had a, I used this example before. I had an, uh, a patient that asked me, um, how is Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, squatting, you know, over 250 after his ACL? And I said, well, he's at a higher caliber, so his base is better, so he could start doing those things. But it doesn't mean he's ready to run and cut yet. But he could start filling the buckets of all the things he's appropriate for, you know, to do that stuff. So he has a really good solid foundation. So when he's ready for that timeline, when the graft is healed and ready to handle those loads, he has, you know, the stability, the strength to start getting those demands on there. But, you know, even if we got a kid who comes in, some of them can stand on one leg really well. And then some of them, I mean, they can't, they can't stand on one leg or, you know, the knees buckling or they can't, they take some like weeks to get an active straight leg raise, you know? So that's what we're finding that some of these kids are so under the mark that, we have to play a lot of catch up with them, you know? Yeah, I, w- I would say, you know, we're all looking at the same patient from different angles, right? And, and what I can do in a clinical exam room really pales in comparison to what you guys can do in a, in a therapy gym setting or in a performance gym setting. And so, you know, I, w- what can I do? I can do a simplistic, maybe a, a single leg squat, a, a repetitive hop test. Maybe I can get them out in the hallway and do a triple hop test. Right. Um, but that, again, that's nothing compared to what you guys can really critically evaluate and, and really objectively measure. And I tell patients that a lot. I, I try to tell them, like, you break it down. They say, can I run? All right, we'll break it down. What does running mean? Running means you got to be able to have a single leg stance and propel yourself. Mm-hmm. You got to have balance. You got to have core strength. And so I tell them there's a lot of things that go into that. And if you're ready at three months, I'm OK with it based on some things that I understand from physiology. Uh, and from healing of the graft and so forth and, and what stress is placed on an ACL. And as long as, you know, you're meeting these other criteria, go ahead. You know, you mentioned Odell Beckham. I, I bring up a lot with patients and maybe we're getting to a point where they don't really remember who he is, but Adrian <laughs> Peterson, yeah. everybody likes to focus on Adrian Peterson's return. And so what I get to say to him is, look, there's a guy who one is superhuman to begin with. Two, he has physical therapists and athletic trainers and strength and conditioning coaches all around him all the time and, and, and is getting paid millions of dollars. So there's a lot of things that are going in his favor that, you know, I can't account for in what you're facing. So, and the other part that I really get back to, and this sounds so simplistic and I I saw a quick story about this. Ray Moyer was the longtime team physician uh, and, and head of sports medicine at Temple University. I remember now, that. I, yeah, I see him as, as my mentor. He taught me everything I know about sports medicine. Uh, and, and he happens to be a fellow Na- Navy guy. He was a naval flight surgeon during Vietnam. Uh, and so, you know, I'd be in the operating room with him as a resident. And I'd say, you know, we did do a, he, we did, you know, the, he had a standard set up for his cases of, when he did ACLs and we do multiple ACLs on one day. And, you know, one day I kind of said to him, like, Hey, so what's the rehab here? What are we doing? Like, how do you, what do you tell this patient afterwards? And he would just look at me and say, you got to walk before you can run. You got to run before you can jump. I'd say, what, what does that even mean? I don't <laughs> And, you know, I'm looking for, they're going to do this at this time and this at that time and everything. You know, I'm looking for all these details. And he would just look at me and say, you got to walk before you can run. You got to run before you can jump. And I, man, I get so frustrated. And now I turn around and say to my residents, you got to walk before you can run. <laughs> you got to run. Before yeah, you yeah. And it's this sense of you got to be able to put the building blocks together. And once you, you can do the components, the parts of it, okay, that's when it's safe to do it. 
and it does take a little bit of understanding of the physiology and, and healing and everything else. But I think really it's a, it's a recognition of you got to be able to do this and then let's see if you can do that. Uh, and it, uh, as much as it frustrated me as a resident, I see it now. And I, I, I spend office hours with him on Thursdays and I, I thank him all the time. because it, <laughs> That's it's something awesome. that, you know, it's as simplistic as it sounds, man, it really does apply. Mm-hmm. You talked about the uh, around that nine month mark where they can kind of get back into that play again. Uh, there's been a lot of you know research out about that as well. As a matter of fact, I'm part of this Facebook group on uh, Facebook, the ACL parents of the ACL, and there was a, a gentleman that interjected in. Uh, I believe he was from Europe because he said something about their athletes, he's shocked that this girl retour hers and she was back before 12 months. And they said in Europe, at young athletes don't return until about 15 months. So we're at nine and 15. So there's another six month gap there. So what is your opinion in that, that six months there? Yeah. You know, here's the tough part. And, and uh, you know, I'm not in that Facebook group, but I follow like Tim Hewitt on, on Twitter and you see a lot of that kind of stuff about, you know, Hey, maybe two years. But the problem is the difference between the United States and Europe is this idea of, you know, collegiate eligibility and uh, really the timeline, right? So if you look at a high school athlete that happens to injure themselves when they're a sophomore, um, it, you know, you can tolerate a year. You can tolerate nine to 12 months. But if you say to them that, it's more like uh, you're, you're going 18 to 24 months. Well, now you're jeopardizing their collegiate career. Uh, or, you know, I, I say that, but they're all obviously sports that that may not necessarily have that same time frame. You know, let's take gymnastics. That's even more compressed yep. because if you're not world class by the time you're like a high schooler, then that's it. It's passed you by. Yep. So when you look at the idea of taking, you know, a year and a half to two years, um, that's that's not acceptable in the United States. I think in Europe, there's a little bit more leeway. There's a little bit more of a of a buffer. And if you say, hey, it's going to be 18 months, I think that's accepted more. And, you know, I, I think there's the balance between what the patient wants and needs, what the parents want and need, and what the surgeon perspective is, what the physical therapist perspective is, what the strength and conditioning perspective is. Um, so I think you try to, you know, have that conversation of, hey, listen, um, at a year, you're going to be okay. Right. You still have this risk of re-tear because your neuromuscular firing patterns aren't quite normal. Um, you know, you might, you might tear your contralateral ACL. Like that's, we know that that's a high risk. Uh, so it's that conversation of, look, you're at risk. And, you know, that you might have to roll the dice because of other circumstances. You know, I've had patients in the last year that, you know, hey, listen, um, I've had a cheerleader. I, I need to be able to audition to get my scholarship. Okay. You know, you're not quite ready. It's not completely normal, but I get it. You might re-tear, but I get that you have to do what you have to do. Gotcha. Um, as long as you understand the potential risks and consequences. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that's, that's the biggest wave that we're up against here. I mean, this yep. organized sport is a huge epidemic. I've been talking to all the athletes that come in ACL tears are not happening. And I grew up in central Jersey and soccer is massive in central Jersey. Yeah. And I think I probably overlooked that 
um, just, you know, being removed from it. I went down the track and field career, um, but soccer was very political in Central Jersey. I mean, uh, we had big tournaments there and it was the coach and the coach's son. And usually the coach's son really wasn't that good, but he was the guy who wanted to pass the ball to. He was also the one that would fall down and try to draw flags all the time. It was, it was never failed. But the reality was, is you had to show up. You had to do well at these, at the, you know, the showcasings, you know, these uh, tryouts to get picked for these travel teams, club teams, massive, um, probably even a little bit more than Bucks County I mean, Pennsylvania's right under there, but there were no ACL to it. I didn't even know what that was. And, you know, like I had friends that were hardcore with all this stuff, but we did other stuff. You know, we, uh, we rode bikes, we jumped over fences, we climbed in trees, you know, we did, we did stuff. And I, I, I saw it just some research coming out showing that there is no greater chance of making an Olympic level or pro level specializing before 16 and that the multi dimensional athlete is the best. So I just want to push the kids to be in like three clubs. It's like a school, another club, and then like this extra club for, I don't know what, so it's just soccer, soccer, soccer. And there's no other balance between stuff. So what I've been trying to pitch to them is, look, you know, so you say you have a chance of re-tearing. So, you know, you're playing and it's like, okay, you go back and then you re-tear. Well, then now what is that? Another year of re to a college, they're giving an injured player a scholarship and, and they don't even know what, you, what your potential is now. You're injured and they don't know where your mindset is. You know, they also have those outcome measures that show the mental status of an, of, of an injured athlete and where they are. So this takes a toll. And Joe and I have really obviously seen, and you've probably seen it too, the mental status of some of these kids with the COVID and the not playing. And the further you're away from this sport, because we, we, uh, we co-treated a kid who tore his ACL twice. And mentally, he's, he's just, you know, he doesn't even know if he wants to do it. And I'm like, look, look, man, once you get back to Joe and you start getting your heart rate up and you start getting past his – the important, but the boring PT stuff. I mean, it is what it is. And you start getting the juices flowing again, you're going to feel really good again. But the further you remove from that and you're just doing these stability stuff, I get it. It's boring. You start losing touch with that. You know, I mean, you just, you just forget that. So it's, I try to explain that, you know, if we could have a period of time where maybe we could just take even just four to six weeks off and just focus on like a strength and stability program, you're still going to get some touches with the ball, but you're spending some time working with a strength coach, getting strong, getting stable, fixing out these asymmetries. Yet now you have um, your, your, uh, your school and then you have another club. So if you're really good, you should be able to shine in two of those. I don't care what the coach of the third club is saying. So reality is, they just want to make money because if you get injured, well, it's the next person up. It's the same thing with gymnastics too. It's kind of like a meat grinder thing. It sounds a little, you know, uh, I don't know, um, like savage, but it's true. It's a moneymaker thing. So I, I'm trying to explain to the parents and the kids, you have to advocate for yourself. And it's the same thing for these, these pro athletes. Every time, you know, Joe and I bring up examples of hearing guys who work with the pros saying, look, you have to advocate for yourself because it's, it's, it's wild out there. You know, it's tough and you see what happens all the time. You know, you give a certain timeline to sign a contract, but if you can't produce, you're going to get cut. Someone else is going to come, you know, so you have to really look out for yourself. And I always use the examples of Tom Brady, LeBron James, you know, Russell Wilson, these guys put a lot of money into their rehab and they have long careers. Their injuries are minimal and they're there. And, you know, when it comes time to going up against someone else's, maybe they bring in some like really great kid from Europe who transferred over and they're awesome. Well, if you're injured on the bench all the time, band-aiding this, 
and you can't play, you don't really have the chance to show that you're the one to beat them out for that position. So what good are you doing? And that's what Joe and I are really running into. We're seeing these kids that are just, you know, that they can't do the basic things and they want to go back and play. And, and then, you know, like it's a weekend where there's like five ACLs happening and it's, it's just insane, you know? So, I mean, I, I think you kind of touched on that, but I mean, it's just trying to tackle this wave of this epidemic of the organized sports, you know, trying to find that balance. I'll tell you, man, it, it, every, there's so much in what you just said. <laughs> it's, it's so dense. There's yep. so many things yeah. you brought up. Uh, so, you know, uh, Jim Andrews, the, like the surgeon to the, the stars of, as far as athletes has really pioneered, uh, this stop sports injuries kind of campaign with the, uh, American orthopedic society for sports medicine and the American medical society for sports medicine. And it's this, this, uh, the big push is this idea of early specialization, uh, really early specialization is so harmful. And you, you just can't convince parents and coaches of that. You know, the coaches are, they, they've got their blinders on. Um, you know, they think, all right, this, this, this kid is really good in this sport. So we're really going to push them in this sport. And the reality is if you talk to most college coaches, high level college coaches, they want to see the multi-sport athlete. Bingo. They want to see yeah. the one that's yeah. not burned out, that has cross training, that has athletic ability outside of their particular sport because they can develop them within that particular sport as long as they're not going to get injured. And as long as they have some other skills. Um, and it also shows other personality traits if they've been able to excel across multiple sports. So, it, but to convince the parents that, Hey, look, I know that, I know that the lacrosse coach is saying that your kid is great at lacrosse. Great. Let them play lacrosse when it's lacrosse season. Let them play soccer when it's soccer season. Let them play basketball. Let them play whatever other sport. But that cross training, I, you know, my personal experience with it was I came from a basketball family. My grandfather was uh, the, the basketball coach at Allen High School in Allentown for 42 years. And my dad was a, a tremendous basketball player in high school, went and played basketball at Penn. And so, you know, it was, it was in my blood that I was going to go play basketball. And I wanted to play football too. And man, did that cause a ruckus. But, <laughs> but the thought was, you know, look, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to play football. I, I actually have a little bit of an aptitude for it. And it's going to help me play basketball. And I, I, I won't say that there was a fight against it. It was more the idea of, oh man, you got to get hurt playing football. Right. But, but I, nobody ever really fought me on it. And it turned out that, you know, I'm not going to say I was great at either sport, but each one helped me with the other. And so I'm convinced that, you know, when you look at kids that get very specialized very early, it's a harmful thing. The research bears it out. If you go and look at the American Journal of Sports Medicine, there's all kinds of research about how early specialization causes an increase in overuse injuries, causes an increase overall in lower extremity injuries. In fact, uh, early specialization is probably the highest risk factor for lower extremity injuries. And it's because you're doing the same thing all the time, whether it's overuse, whether it's maladaptive patterns, whatever it is, the, the, the single sport specialization is, is, uh, is really a blight right now. Um, And, and it doesn't matter how much the doctors say, Hey, you know, and not just doctors, but you guys, what are you doing? This is insane. You got to cross train, you got to rest certain muscle groups, you got to do different things. And that's what's going to make you a better athlete, better conditioned, everything. So, so that's the one big thing that you, you kind of unpack. You know, the other thing that you talk about 
with regard to, you know, the, the multiple travel teams and, and the school team and the, you know, I, I, I've been surprised over and over again, because in my time going through school and high school and everything, all the recruiting occurred in your high school season. Now it's the opposite, right? You know, we would go play AAU and all right, that was great. But the recruiting, you know, it was more in your high school season. Now it's flipped. And, and I, it, it blows my mind when I have conversations with, with kids and their parents, Hey, listen, we can time this surgery so that it doesn't disrupt your school. No, no, no. Go ahead. Do the surgery because AAU is where it counts. Um, or the travel team is where it counts. Yeah. That's where they're going to get the most exposure. And it just, you know, I, I, I really struggle with that because, um, you know, again, a lot of that stuff is for profit um, or is, is whether it's for profit or not incredibly expensive. And uh, I just, I, I think we've lost our way in, in youth athletics uh, in that yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, God, there's, there's even more stuff in what you brought up that now is there, in my mind. But well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah and, and, and talking. I was like, oh, man, I got to talk about that. I got to talk about write that. Write this down, write this down, yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? And, and honestly, to go back on to what you were saying, or what both you guys were saying earlier, is that the reason why you didn't hear about these things, Mike, when we were younger is because of that simple fact. You were climbing fences. You were you were you were you know climbing trees. You played you played baseball in the spring. You played football in the fall. You played basketball in the winter. That was it. You know, the coaches hated me because my younger son was a really good basketball player. But he, I mean, I'm sorry, he was a really good soccer player. But he loved basketball. So when it came to the winter, they wanted him to play indoor. And he would say, dad, I don't want to play indoor. I want to play basketball. I want to be a kid. And I get on the phone and listen, he doesn't want to, how can you do that? He's our scorer. Yeah. I said, the kid wants to play other sports. He wants to do other things. And you know what? He's an all around athlete. He can kick a throw a frisbee. He can hit a baseball. He can dunk up, you know, like it's just, and no injuries, you know, knock on wood, but um, it's just, that's it. You're doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you yeah. don't want them to burn out. That's the other thing is we have yep. kids burning out. Like you got to <laughs> love the sport. You know, when you get to a point where you're playing in college, if you don't have a, just a burning desire to play, you're going to get yep. destroyed. You got to, you know, it, it, it becomes a very different perspective. And then again, a different perspective at the professional level, you know, you alluded to the idea of like, look, if you're not performing, you're out. Right. Well, you know, what it takes to get to that level is such a sense of dedication and passion for the sport that if you get burned out at the age of 12, like, what are you doing? Yep. And and you see so many tremendous athletes just sort of drop off because that's it. They've had enough. They've been pushed to beyond their limit. And, and you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, maybe they it wasn't meant to be for them. Yeah, but it could have been. It could have been. If, if you hadn't pushed them so hard in that sport, if you'd let them explore some other things and, I, you know, one of my best friends growing up was a phenomenal wrestler. He, he was, you know, I, I don't even know what the classification was at the time, but you know, he, he won every match and everything else. We got to high school and he stopped wrestling. Now he also had parents who had the good sense to have him do all different things. He played football, he played basketball. He wound up being maybe even a better basketball player than he was a wrestler. And then he ultimately was a tremendous football player, wound up playing in college and, and actually had, you know, a look at playing in the NFL for a little bit. So again, it just proves the point that if you're an athlete, you're an athlete. And if exactly. you cross train and if you play other sports, you're going to succeed. 
But if you get squeezed down this one path, you're going to burn out and you're going to quit. Yep. I heard Patrick Mahomes on the Whoop uh, podcast, and he didn't even know he was going to go to the NFL until a year before. Yeah, isn't that um, great? Yeah, and then, you know, you look at someone who is this genetic phenomenon, and he tears his ACL. Yep. You know, so I use that as an example that, um, you know, it really doesn't matter. You know, you could have the best genetics, you know, really good tissue quality, and then you got someone else like um, – what's his name from the Texans, the guy who's always J.J. Watt. That yeah. guy just wants to go and just wreck house, and he's always injured. Sometimes it's mom and dad, you don't have the genetics. Yep. Uh, we get that from a lot of parents, too. They got to get faster. They got to get faster. I'm like, what is the obsession with speed? Do you watch pro soccer? No one is doing breakaways hogging the ball. You know, it's passing, it's field awareness, it's quick touches. You want to be quick and be able to move, so – Joe and I get on our spiel about, you know, they're still doing this, this mile, two mile run test. I'm like, there's no translation to this sport. It's, you know, you have to be able to shift, move quick, you know? Um, so, but these parents want them to be faster and, ex and explosive. You want to be able to be reactive and be able to control. But uh, again, you know, genetics, if mom and dad don't have the genetics fast, you're probably not going to be fast, you know? And but there's ways to train that, but if you can't stand on one leg, can't go from there. But I get that, you know, you want your kid to be involved because you want kids to be focused. We don't want them out doing stupid stuff, you know, drugs, other stupid things they do when they get bored. But I mean, you know, when I was a kid, we played everything. We played street hockey, basketball, we did a little bit of everything, you know, and you play some manhunt, you know, like anything, you know, um, to get that. And I mean, this is, this is why, like, we love to do these things to be able to network and see your perspective as a surgeon, because we feel like if, if, if voice comes from more surgeons also saying this, you know, that'll also set in because then parents and coaches here, okay, surgeons are saying this, strength coaches are saying this, physical therapists are saying this, something's given that we have gotten our way down this path. And th these surgeries are not normal just because they're happening. I mean, an ACL is a massive surgery and that's what these parents aren't understanding when they say, well, when they get back, when they get back, I just want you to understand the complexity of this. This is a ligament that should not be tearing, right. you know, this should not be happening. Um, and there's gotta be a way that, you know, and that's something that I want to go forward and do and is developing some program to make this fun where they almost have an off season, but they're still involved. I mean, you could de de design a high intensity workout and involve soccer with it. Joe and I have like just kind of shot the idea of doing stuff like this. Like, uh, you know, I do obstacle course racing, the Spartan race stuff, and you could do that has gotten so big because it gets you outside. It gets you doing all these things. And it got people doing stuff that they didn't think they're going to do anymore. It got them out of the gyms, traditional ways of doing things. Now people are in the mud, they're climbing ropes, they're doing stuff, make stuff fun again. And the possibilities are endless. I feel like there's got to be a way you could do that with some of these sports. You could create workouts where these kids are doing things to hit all the basics, kind of like what Mike Boyle does. He makes it fun for the young kids. He's like, well, I'm not going to have them doing squats. They're 11 years old. But I can have them do like little sit to stands and throwing bumper plates around, making it fun, old bumper plates. It's a game to them, but they're hitting functional movement patterns because at a certain age, young kids can't express that intensity. You can't give them like an organized, okay, we're doing, you know, an EMOM or an AMRAP. It's not going to work, yeah, you know? So it's got to be a way with these high school kids that we could design something where you're hitting these stations and you go and you get some touches with the ball and then it's training them. Well, how good is your footwork and your skill when you're really tired? You know, and then we could video on the show. Look, I just hit you with squats and a salt bike. You know, if you're appropriate, you could do some type of jump stuff or burpees and then do a couple pull-ups, gas your whole system. Now I want you to hit these drills and then maybe even do it with a teammate. 
wow, you guys look really sloppy. What's going to happen when you're going into overtime in that playoff game? But it makes it fun for them, you know, because now they're doing something a little bit different. It's not just soccer, soccer. It's like all these other cool things, then some soccer. There's got to be a way to do something like that. Well, the fatigue thing's interesting, right? Because when you look at the the idea of when do you get your ACL tear, well, when it's your fatigue, you're not paying attention, you know, you don't have your, your normal movement patterns. So from an injury prevention standpoint, that's phenomenal. From an overall conditioning standpoint, you know, prevention of burnout standpoint, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Make it fun. Make it something where they're doing functional movements. They don't even know what they're doing. But when, when you know, when the, the kids and their parents get caught up in this mentality of, oh, every day I got to be doing something. If I'm not getting better, I'm getting worse. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it, there's a role for that at times, yeah, but yeah. not when you're a kid. Not at that level. And yeah. so if you can make it fun for them, mix it up. Yeah, that's tremendous. They might not even know they're getting better. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, if you can find that sweet spot, if you can convince anybody, any of the coaches, you know, again, it, there's a lot of people that have their blinders on. And, and I'd say coaches, it's not just coaches, it's coaches, it's parents, it's, it's parents. The kids. Yep. They, yep. They, there's all these expectations. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. Cause like I said, the stops, the stop, uh, campaign i think is fantastic i don't know that it's getting through the way it should right um you know you guys have the right well, well not around here <laughs> not around here yeah and, and look you know if you look at the culprits it's generally it's soccer it's baseball right yep. you know think about the the ulnar collateral ligament reconstructions that are getting done on adolescence yeah. it's insane insane um, yeah and so and again i think that's actually what probably triggered dr andrews the number of like 13 year olds that he saw getting UCL reconstructions yeah. because they're overthrowing and they're yeah, not yeah. following pitch counts. They're yeah. playing travel baseball for four different teams. Yeah. You know, it, it's, and as much as any individual coach might try to follow the rules, it's the cumulative effect. Nice. So yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I wish I had the answer. That's good um, stuff. Yeah. In terms of the rehab, uh, there's some more stuff coming out about nutrition. Uh, do you have any perspective or things on that? Because that is something that Joe and I want to get more involved in is providing a good nutrition package. And we brought on some people on here to talk about nutrition, supplements, things like that. Um, but definitely something, you know, if these injuries are happening, we know, you know, the, the average high school uh, and even collegiate athlete is not <laughs> eating what they need to be eating because they don't know any better. They're not sure. Um, but we have a better knowledge of things now. And then even, um, you know, even if you do go to a really good, you know, D1, D2, even D3 school, some of the coaches have them on meal programs so they know they're getting their bases covered. I just had this conversation with an athlete, Joe, the other night uh, to make sure that they're getting their stuff. And you can still eat and have fun and you have to live your life, but they know that they're basically getting covered. So when it becomes before workout, I know what you had for lunch and it wasn't gummy bears and Cheetos. <laughs> yeah it's that idea of fueling the machine right I, I tell them all the time fuel the machine right make sure you're putting in good stuff so you know what you're getting out like I, I my own experience was taking some supplements that I'm probably embarrassed to point out of like you know I'm trying to think in high school hot stuff god that's probably got 100 banned substances in it uh, but but you know so I I get the idea of it I get look you're trying to get every competitive advantage but you got to understand what that means you got to understand what's going in and you got to understand the effect it has so yeah I, you know where i think that has the most detrimental effect is when you see especially athletes that are working out in the heat right you see them cramp because they're whether they're not appropriately hydrated don't have appropriate nutrition you know take your pick 
but you know you see whether it's the the endurance athletes whether it's you know football players as they start up their their you know two a days or something in august in the heat they're trying to do their heat acclimatization and they struggle with it and i think a lot of that is because of not paying attention to the nutritional aspect not paying attention to the hydration you know it's I see a lot of guys will carry around a gallon jug of water. Okay. Well, that's, it's not quite that simplistic. Um, And so, yeah, I'm a firm believer in the idea of fuel the machine with the appropriate fuel. I, I, I have to admit, I don't always live by that myself, but I at least understand the concept and try to live by it. There you go. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to try to dig into some more information on getting some more ideas because people say, okay, good nutrition, but what does that entail? They go to supermarket and they don't know what to buy. And a lot of stuff is, very false. And, um, uh, you know, I, I have some good, uh, um, you know, networks and uh, a current sponsor that I, I could provide good information to because I'm not, that's not my area of expertise, but I have some basic knowledge and I can direct them into the right um, direction for that. But we definitely want to try to develop something there. We could give them a little bit more of a program that they can follow because I feel like if people have something to follow and then generic, they won't get so lost. So it's definitely something we want to work on. But Back to what you were saying about, you know, the UCL tears and all that. I feel like a lot of these injuries are happening with these sports where it's really easy to go do it every day. You can literally go out and play soccer every day. You're probably not going to go play football every day all year round because you get smashed a couple of times. You're going to be really hurt. Or even like boxing, you're going to go out and box every day. You need some time off getting hit in the face. Every, you're not going to survive. Um, even CrossFit. If you try to hit some of those really, really extreme workouts every day, I mean, I've done it before. I've done really hard workouts and you destroy your central nervous system, you are baked and overtraining. I probably hit overtraining a handful of times and it's not fun. You just feel like trash, you know, and and your body just doesn't produce. And that's the cool thing about recovery tools like whoop strap or anything like that. They will show you when your recovery is down, it's going up your heart rate, your central nervous system. If you push when you're in that red zone, you know, you can get away with it sometimes, but you're playing with fire. Sometimes you don't get burned. Sometimes you will. So Again, I think that's the thing with soccer, too. It's a very easy sport that a lot of kids get into when they're three. It's just the thing, and they go from four or five and they keep going. It's easy to do every day. You're running, kicking a ball, you know? Um, so I, I think it's so easy to get into that just all year round type thing, you know? Yeah, it's kind of exciting to see sort of the uh, the metrics that you can apply to it now, right? So whether it's the whoop strap or the aura ring or, you know, whatever, where it's measuring things like heart rate variability, looking at your sleep, looking at, you know, all the measures of recovery. Uh, that's, that's an interesting sort of like uh, uh, frontier, I think, in athletic performance. You know, the Sixers went all in on that a few years ago and they had the specialists come in and analyze guys sleep. And I get it. I think that that's probably a good idea. It's interesting to think about how that applies to your, your collegiate athlete, your high school athlete, right? You know, it's one thing, you got a guy on contract for tens of millions of dollars. You can tell him, Hey, you better be in bed and you better get this much yeah. sleep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Different story. When you're talking to an adolescent, you know, tell yeah. a 17 year old, Hey, are you getting 10 hours of sleep a night? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I've got a 16 year old daughter and, and, you know, for the most part, she's great, but man, uh, <laughs> the sleep thing. Yeah. And, and I was the same way. So I can't necessarily throw stones. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting to think that if I had an aura ring or, or a whoop strap on me and, and it was showing me what I was doing when I was depriving myself of sleep or doing whatever else I was doing, I might have looked at it differently. Yeah. yeah. I That's why you get some good feedback from that. Yeah. yeah. I have a nine month old that does not sleep. 
<laughs> so my recovery is. Oh man, got to get him on a schedule. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. What are you doing? Try the schedule, and she basically says, "Screw you." But the there's a tab on there where it says "Parenting an Infant," and you could click it, and their journal keeps getting updated. We could add more things like your commute to work, are you feeling irritable today, stuff like that. So they're really constantly re going through, and it's really really cool to look at it and see where you are and see what happens with your recovery and things like that. Um, yeah, so it's it's a cool metric. So it's cool for the future of, of what we can do. And I mean, if we could get like a high school team to buy into like a subscription like that and do a trial with them or something and see what happens if we just play with some of these metrics and how it happens, that could be a really groundbreaking thing to do. It's just, we got to get the information out there to them and get them to understand. And I mean, subscriptions for the stuff really isn't that expensive. I mean, for the amount of money that they're spending on a lot of other things, I think that it, you get a benefit from this and maybe cut back on spend. I'm not going to tell you how to spend their money, but I just see like where you're spending your money on other stuff. Well, what if you could try putting it here for this and see, what you could get from that, you know? I mean, I think you can only benefit. You can't really, you know. Can you imagine how that would catch fire if you could show that in a high school team, they decreased injuries and they increased like uh, scholarships to division one and two schools like that. Oh my God, that, that would... changes everything. <laughs> you better hey, sign really... up as a sponsor right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm down to do it. I mean, Whoop is very responsive. That guy, Will, is really cool. Um, you know, he does a lot of stuff. I mean, he gets athletes even in Spartan Race sponsored. I mean, that's yeah. how I got involved with it. Um, so he's definitely open to projects and things like that. They do put out a lot of research. They bring on people. Their podcast is very interesting. They bring out some legitimate people, athletes, to talk about what they're doing. Um, it's pretty cool. They're very involved. And I like that. It's not just like some product and it's yes. like, okay, well, whatever. It's like, they're really invested in it, which is really cool. So there could be potential there. I mean, it's just really all about trying to get people to understand like what it is and what benefit you'll get and what it shows and even like a trial thing, but that could be an option going forward or something that, you know, we could try working with. That'd be really cool to see what happens with that. Oh yeah. I'd love to see it. Speaking of like these, these new like concepts out there, uh, we, I usually go into asking three questions, but this kind of leads into one of them. And it's like, what are, what are some of the things that are out there now that are kind of keeping you awake at night? Like something that, something new, like a new technique out there. Uh, you're talking about from like the, the wearable technology type of thing uh, that we were talking about or just. Uh, some, no, from the, from the actual, the ACL surgery itself. Is there anything new out there? Like, I, I heard something years ago about this, like a, like a bridge, like a matrix where they're using the, the ACL itself and repairing it. So is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's interesting. So ACL repair is, is one of those things that uh, it, it, it was one of the initial treatments, right? So if you think back to like the sixties or seventies, we didn't really, we thought the ACL was like a, something that didn't really matter. So people would injure it. Nah, they got a trick knee and whatever. Uh, and then they started to realize, no, actually that has a function and mm -hmm. when you tear it, maybe we should try to fix that. So they tried to do a repair. Well, that didn't really work. And for various reasons. And it's because, you know, whether it's the inflammatory response, whether it's the ACL's position within the knee, that it's actually, you know, any, any healing elements that might occur kind of get washed away by joint fluid. Uh, and so then it went to, okay, well, look, repair doesn't work. So we got to get rid of it and we got to reconstruct it with something else. And so that's been sort of the mainstay of treatment since like the seventies, eighties, nineties, you know, through now in the last 10 years or so, it's the idea of, Hey, hey, maybe we can make a repair work if we can isolate the environment of the repair. So it's, you know, all right, let's take a, a collagen sleeve 
and put it over where the tear is and, and do things to stitch the ACL back together. Some things have worked, some things have not worked. There's been clinical trials that got stopped because no, it's not working. You know, don't do that anymore. Right. More people at risk if you try to keep looking at that. Um, some things actually have shown some promise though. Uh, so there are some settings where an ACL repair might be appropriate. I would say the other thing is the idea of graft selection, right? So, you know, the, that pendulum has been swinging back and mm-hmm. forth. Early ACL reconstructions, hamstrings. We'd use the hamstrings. That's what we do to reconstruct it. And then uh, uh, maybe we should use the patellar tendon because you can get a bone block from the patella and a bone block from the tibial tubercle. And now you have bone to bone healing and that's going to happen. It's right? Uh, and, and then, you know, there are some people that were using the quadriceps tendon and they'd say, well, you know, look, this, this, instead of like the thin patellar tendon, you might get 10 millimeters of width, which is kind of the standard that you shoot for but it's still thin. Well, if we take the quadriceps, well, now that's a big fat tendon. That's full of collagen. That's going to make a great mm-hmm. ACL. And it does. It just doesn't have the track record that a, quad, uh, that a patellar tendon graft might have or that a hamstring graft might have. And so the idea of, all right, well, let's look at that and let's see, you know, do, do athletes get back faster? Do they have a lower retail rate? I think we don't have the answer to that yet, but that's, that's what excites me. That's the part of, all right, let's try this. Let's see. It might work better. And if it does great, now we got a new standard. Uh, so that's, that's been, for me, that's been the exciting part of doing, you know, I guess the vanguard of ACL surgeries. Right. Right. Mike, did you have something there? You were getting ready to have something. Um, I remember I, I wanted to take an updated, um, you know, Kevin Wilk course, but obviously COVID uh, canceled that, but I took very early on in my career, his, um, you know, shoulder, elbow, knee update, which is really cool because like a year out to learn all that stuff was like awesome. And it was so mind blowing, but then you just keep, you know, digesting it and applying it and learning. And then in the beginning of my career too, we, we used to uh, um, contract the Rothman Institute. So I had a lot of time to at least shadow under a lot of those guys. And they were all really awesome letting me come down and learn from like, you know, Dr. Frederick, Dr. Ramsey, um, you know, a lot of these guys, uh, everyone, even some of the sports med guys, um, you know, and I remember talking about something about, you know, like the angle of the graph they put in, um, can dictate the way it is. And I guess, I don't know, does that come down to maybe the experience expertise of the surgeon or is there, or is there a reason why maybe the angle might be a little different and sometimes it has to be a little bit tighter or something like that. Sometimes maybe it's something doesn't feel right when you're stretching. I mean, when does that something that would be an issue or as a PT would be like, hmm, something feels a little off here. I think I, I would call it shared expertise, right? So, you know, my personal experiences of how I do an ACL reconstruction may not be applicable to the greater population. But if you take my experiences and Dr. Frederick's experiences and, you know, and, and take your pick as to how many sports medicine surgeons, you know, Freddie Fu at Pittsburgh and his experiences and, and Chris Harner down in Houston, you know, you take them all and you say, okay, here's what looks like it's a good idea. And, you know, even in the time that I've been from the time I was a resident and the time I'm in practice, we've changed where we decide to put the tunnels for the femoral side of the graft and the tibial yeah. side of the graft. And, you know, you look at sort of the evolution of the surgical concept. Uh, you know, early on it was, all right, we got to try to put this graft where it's not going to hit the roof of the notch when the knee is ex- in extension. And then we realized a little bit later on, like, all right, well, it's not going to hit it if we put it in the right spot. 
you know, Freddie Fu gives a tremendous talk on sort of the evolution of the concept of ACL reconstruction over the course of his career, because he's taken it from, all right, you just drill it like this and here's how you do it to, well, wait a minute. We know there's two distinct bundles to the ACL. So let's reconstruct those two distinct bundles. But it, again, when you do the research on that, all right, well, that actually may not matter whether you do the two distinct bundles or one, as long as you put the graft where the anatomy would dictate. And so if you think about where the femoral origin is, where the tibial insertion is, and you try to match that, and you try to use grafts that are gonna match the native ACL, and then you try to do the rehab that matches, you know, neuromuscular uh, firing that's appropriate so that it protects that graft. It protects, you know, when it becomes, you know, it's not a graft anymore, when it's an ACL. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's where the, the progression is. So I, I don't know that it's any individual surgeon's experience other than the knowledge of, all right, you know, if I'm looking with an arthroscope at the knee, that's where it goes, right? That's where the, that's where anatomically it, it should be on this patient, you know, you can talk about um, individualization of it, right? You can talk about, you know, should I be looking at putting this femoral tunnel eight millimeters from the back of the femoral condyle, or should I look at where was this person's ACL, right? You know, you can normally see that. So mm -hmm. should I put it right in the middle of where it was? Uh, and so I think that that evolution and understanding is really where uh, you see differences in outcomes. Dr. Sewards, do you do you only do patella graft? No, I'm, I'm 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 all over the place. Okay, <laughs> and, okay. and I say it like that because I, I I really you know I am comfortable with doing any of the different grafts, and so I recognize that in any conversation with a patient, I can probably steer them one way or another. But I try to keep it kind of wide open and say, all right, listen, here are the benefits to doing a patellar tendon graft. Here are the potential drawbacks. Here are the benefits of doing a hamstring graft. Here are the potential drawbacks. And here's a new graft, this quadriceps tendon, which I say new, but it's been in use for a long time. All right. I say new because it hasn't been used quite as much. And so we don't have the track record. But I've seen more than lately. There's been a recent push because I think you see that like, hey, the outcomes are actually really good. Uh, the morbidity of the graft harvest is relatively low. You know, it tends not to give you a lot of deficits. I've been trying in my own practice to understand where to employ that. It's tough for me because, you know, look, I, I've done patellar tendon grafts and hamstring grafts the entire time I've been operating. Learned them as a resident. It's what I've applied. Right. I, I would say as a resident, I probably got most comfortable with doing a patellar tendon graft. Going into the military, I went into a situation where I thought, all right, we'll do a patellar tendon graft. And then I had a few Marines say to me, Hey doc, when I kneel on that knee now, it, it hurts, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a scar or whatever. And I'd say, okay, well, deal with that. Yeah, but doc, I need to be able to kneel to be able to fire my, my rifle. Oh, yeah. all right, that's a problem. Right. And the way I always framed it in that setting was not that I was going to war with these guys, but hey man, if I'm ever behind you and you're kicking down the door, I don't want you going down. I, right, right. <laughs> I got to worry about how functional mm -hmm. you are. How about so, that? Okay, so the functionality to... Yeah, yeah it became a little bit more uh, of an urgent kind of thing. So, Interesting. So, is the uh, one a bone-to-bone -bone also? So uh, there is the ability to do a patellar uh, bone block from the quadriceps tendon. 
Uh, but there are a lot of surgeons that that do not do that because of the risk of patellar fracture and various other things. And it looks like the quadriceps tendon is equally effective if you do it as a soft tissue only graft. Um, again, you get a good bulk of collagen so that it gives you a good healthy size uh, ACL when it all heals in. So uh, what do you, you put the collagen and what do you stitch it into the bone or how does it? Yeah, so you create a bone tunnel in the tibia, you create a bone tunnel in the femur, exactly. and you pass the graft in there, and now you have a certain amount of, of soft tissue within the exactly. bone. Well, the bone will heal into the soft tissue. It doesn't heal quite as quickly uh, as if it were bone. Bone-to-bone -bone healing is, you know, bone is one of the few tissues in the body that will heal without a scar. It basically, you know, creates a bony bridge, and there you go. Uh, so, you know, there, you can debate whether a patellar tendon graft is better than a quadriceps tendon graft for that reason, or better than a hamstring graft for that reason. But, you know, there's so much that goes into it. What are you using to fix the graft to the bone? What are you using, you know, uh, how, how quickly will it heal in? What's the, the tensile strength of any of these grafts? Um, you know, if you look at the tensile strength of a native ACL, anything we use tends to exceed the native strength. So, you know, if you look at a patellar tendon graft, it's about the strength of a native ACL graft. A hamstring graft is actually stronger, but the fixation might not be stronger. Mm -hmm. And if you look at these, you know, huge studies that look at thousands and thousands and thousands of ACL reconstructions that have been done, it, they, they generally show that, look, all these graphs are about the same, but the hamstring graft might have a little bit higher failure rate, a little bit higher. And if you look at big meta-analyses, which is basically trying to compile all these studies together, I think the most recent thing I saw is that, you know, the, the, the number to, that you need to treat to see a difference would be like somewhere in the neighborhood of 280 patients to see one difference, one tear on a hamstring graft as opposed to a patellar tendon graft. Wow. So it's a lot of that stuff gets very confusing and it's tough to talk to patients about it yeah. in that way. Right. So I tend to say, look, all these do about the same. Would you rather have a little bit of anterior knee pain? Would you rather have a little bit of hamstring weakness and maybe difficulty with terminal acceleration? Uh, or would you rather have this graph that we're not quite sure yet, but it looks really good. Um, and, you know, I kind of have that conversation with them. It takes me a while. You know, yeah, if, yeah. if I like, let's say a typical patient visit, you know, we have a conversation about their surgery. I, I don't know, let's say it's 10 or 15 minutes. When we're talking about ACLs and grafts, it, it tends to go probably a good 10 or 15 minutes beyond that, because we, we talk about, you know, what are your priorities? What are your expectations? What, what do you want to avoid in your recovery? What are you willing to accept? Um, and that plays into then what we decide to do. How is your, what's your feel on bracing and not bracing? <laughs> so very controversial, right? If you look at the research, it would show that the bracing doesn't matter at all. Um, I would tell you that I probably fall, I, I try to, to uh, I straddle the fence. So a lot of team physicians would say, you know, yeah, bracing doesn't matter, but I'm going to brace them for their first season back. Uh, and I think to me that helps them with their neuromuscular uh, firing patterns. It helps them with proprioception. It helps them with their confidence that their knee is going to be protected. So I generally will brace them for their first season back. 
uh, depending on the sport. So football, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, things like soccer, it's tough. That brace is, is uh, really uh, disruptive in a yeah. sport like soccer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I tend to try to convince them, hey, you don't need it. Um, same thing with basketball. You know, it's, it's disruptive to try to wear yeah. an ACL brace in yeah. basketball. Yeah. So for sports like that, I try to say, you know, see how you feel. And if you're confident enough, try to go without it. Certainly for their rehab, I try to get them to rehab without a brace at all. Look, I want you to, I want you to feel good and do right. well without anything. Right. And then if you feel like you need something, it's actually adding something to it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, do you feel as though that the, the brace, because this was some of the things that we, we heard before, Mike, was that, that the brace could, could potentially limit the destruction that happens. For instance, if you're wearing that, ACL still tear, but maybe you're limiting the meniscus tear on lateral collateral tear. Is that, does that play into it? That's the theory behind why you to do it in that first season back, right? You know, we know it, it definitely kind of holds true for uh, medial collateral ligament tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, West Point did a lot of those studies that would show that, you know, bracing of linemen in football doesn't really make much of a difference, but it may make, uh, it may cause a decreased severity of MCL injury. So instead of an offensive lineman getting a grade three MCL and being out for the rest of the season, they might get a grade one because they had a brace on. And so when you look at like, you know, again, look at college football, what teams, every one of their linemen have a brace on and other teams, none of them have a brace on. And I think that's the back and forth. So yeah, there is something, the idea that in a post-op setting, put them in an ACL brace, they might re-injure themselves, but if they do, it may not have the associated meniscus tear, the associated medial collateral ligament tear. Gotcha. Mikey, you froze down. Oh, there you go. Now, in the time that uh, we were working with Rothman, you know, obviously being right there with them, saw a lot of crazy post-op stuff. I mean, I saw, you know, uh, uh, very involved uh, Oates procedure, which is really uh, interesting rehab there. I would think uh, Dr. Eamon, I think he was over in uh, West Norton or East Norton, somewhere over there. But I know he used to do some stuff with Wilk and those guys. Um, so it was pretty cool to get, you know, a patient work with that and see some of that. Um, but, you know, when a lot of these kids coming in, Joe and I were talking, it seems like it's just like just an ACL, maybe a little bit of the medial meniscus. My theory was because with soccer, it's like there's only so much damage with non-contact you do to yourself. Um, with a, uh, maybe like a you know, sport like football, if a helmet comes to your knee, there could be some arterial venous, de- you know, cartilage damage, things like that. Um, how do you feel about that in terms of sports, in terms of complexity of tears and the amount of stuff going on in that knee with the sport? Yeah, I, I think, you know, that there's definitely a difference between a non-contact injury where it's your body weight going one way, you try to change directions and your knee buckles on you, right? Versus you're changing directions or you're doing whatever you're doing and somebody else hits you from an opposite direction. Uh, you know, it's the it's same thing that we see in like trauma. Somebody gets hit by a car. Somebody gets, you know, take your pick as to what causes their injury to their knee. And you see increases severity of injury. So, you know, there's, there's an entity of patients that have what are called basically low energy knee dislocations, which is a multiple ligament injury. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're talking about from the athlete standpoint, you tend not to see knee dislocations in a non-contact setting. You do see them in the contact setting. Willis McGahee is probably the yeah. most famous example still. And, and yeah. now we're what, 20 years later? 
yeah. uh, in a national championship game where he gets hit and you see his knee dislocate. And, mm-hmm. and look, I think that's a credit to him and his surgeons and medical team. I never thought he was getting back on a field and he did. And he did. Uh, yep. It's really remarkable that he was able to do that because wow. when you think about, you know, not just the ligamentous injury, but the, the injury to the blood vessels, the injury to the nerves, it's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I read that research article. I used this as an example. Uh, it was in the JOSPT from Wilk on uh, Dunta Robinson when he got his knee blown up when he played for Houston. Yep. And then he came back, played for was it Atlanta, and he was the one who uh, blew up to Sean Jackson across the middle of the field. <laughs> uh, but the complexity of that knee was, I mean, they took weeks to get that swelling down, the pain. And then now he's back playing at a high level enough to take out, you know, a wide receiver, you know. Um, so, uh, it is pretty incredible what you can come back to and, and just seeing the amount of damage that is done in the knee and how it could be repaired. But, um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that, you know, because, uh, yeah, I mean, when you do the right things and the right protocol, what, what can come back from that, you know? Yep. Hey, Doc, another question for you here. Uh, kind of going back to that, um, your, like, what was I saying? Um, your obsession, your, like, your biggest obsession now, like I know I, I asked you about like what keeps you awake at night, but what, what's your biggest obsession right now? You know, I got to say I, my obsession tends to, to lie with the idea of educating uh, future surgeons, right? So I, I've been the program director for the orthopedic surgery residency at Temple for um, it's, it's been 10 years. And, you know, whether it's educating the medical students that want to go do what I do, whether it's educating the residents that are going to do, whether it's what I do or, other fields in orthopedics. I, I truly have a passion for that. You know, I, I when I came out of the Navy, um, one, I was going to stay in the Navy. Uh, and I, I had an offer to come back to Temple and, and start working with uh, Temple Athletics and, and the residents. And, and that was, I couldn't pass that up. But, but I, I also had looked at a couple opportunities and in, in different practices around Philadelphia. And what it came down to is I sat down and thought, all right, if I operate on a certain number of patients a year, see a certain number of patients in the office, I can help that number of patients. If I do that, but also teach residents how to do the same thing, I now have impact on an exponentially increasing number of people. So I've kind of carried that with me. And so honestly, the being able to pass on what I've learned from my mentors, what I've learned, you know, people have educated me, what I've learned from my own experiences and things like what we're talking about. You know, when you look at the surgical techniques and think, all right, you know, here's what I've seen in the evolution of this stuff. If I can impart that to my residents and then they have the same sort of uh, enlightenment on how things happen, you know, they can make the next groundbreaking discovery on what we're supposed to be doing with this stuff. So that's the stuff that really drives me. You know, look, there's there's a lot of things that are frustrating about, you know, what I do and 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 all that kind of stuff. I I, don't get me wrong. I love my job. I love everything about it. But there's times where you kind of get worn out, burned out, whatever. Um, That's the stuff, though, that that keeps me going, gets me out of bed every day. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. The same PT school, you know, everyone raises their hand because they want to work with athletes and they want to do that. And uh it's a lot of work. I mean, I, I did a lot of stuff specializing with runners and I mean, being a runner myself, like I can be honest, like sometimes I hate treating runners because they're so frustrated and they don't listen. And the minute they feel good, they're back to doing 10 yeah. miles yeah. and we just got started. <laughs> the greatest um, and the worst patient at the same time. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Um, but you know, the, uh, the field sport athlete, 
um, especially with the population we're seeing, uh, high school, female, that is a loaded bomb right there. There's a lot that goes into that, um, which is why, you know, there's just, a, there's just a lot, there's a complexity there, you know, there's a lot of emotional and physical differences and things like that. Um, and it's a lot and you have to be able to ready to take that on. Um, there's a lot of specialists that talk about what it's like working with female athletes. Um, and there's also there's not enough research in that area. A lot of stuff is based off of men, especially the nutrition. So, um, you know, trying to move forward and, and explore this area more is really important. But like you said, it, it can, it's like an uphill battle, but, uh, when you get that breakthrough, you know, it's definitely rewarding, you know. That's what I was going to say. The reward when you get it right and they get better is tough yep. to beat. Yep, yep, yep. I have a whole wall over here of all the testimonials. And, and, and to me, like, that, that's it, you know. Yeah. Getting the text messages from the parent, from the athlete. Hey, I scored. I'm back to playing. The, the opportunity to go out to the field and see them, you know, after you've seen them in here, you saw the days that they struggled. You saw the days yeah. that they wanted to yeah. cry and you saw the days that they hated you, you know, like, and all that comes together and they're back out on the field. It, it is. That's the most, that's the rewarding part about what I do. That's why I love doing what I do. Yeah. Definitely tough to beat that. Yep. Well, listen. I, I can't thank you enough for not only being able to uh, rearrange your schedule from last week to this week, but the, the conversation, uh, we didn't even talk about my, my minutes because who cares? It's better. It's better. It's getting better. So that's all that matters. Yours, yours was easy, man. That I was easy. Make too big a deal out of that. That's right. That, that was easy stuff. So we don't even have to talk about that. But I, 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 again, I just can't thank you enough for, for your time, your, your insight to all this, uh, answering some of the tougher questions that I said to Mike. I said, when he comes on, we're going to ask these questions because I, I, I want to know. You know, I want I, I, Not only do I want to know, but hopefully the, the 12,000 people that we have listening to our show, they're all going to learn from this. Yeah. You know, So yeah. <laughs> keep jacking them numbers up, Mike. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. So, yeah. That's what we really want to do. We want to, we want to be able to get this out to as many people as we can. The whole point of this podcast is the education. It's not about, uh, you know, any uh, sponsors or, or hearing ourselves talk and stuff like that. It's, you know, people need to hear this information. So we're trying to bring on as many people that can provide that education. Um, and if you look at all of our guests, they are all a variety of, um, of expertise, but it all blends together. And I said this, I think when we had Kate Decker on that, if we had everybody, all of our guests in one room, it would be a massive network. And that's what we're trying to build here. We're trying to build a really strong network, especially around this Bucks County area of getting people into the right, right systems, because uh, we're seeing a lot of it. And, and I mean, I had this conversation uh, with some other uh, physical therapists. I'm like, man, like if this was my daughter, I would be furious because these people, you don't know what you don't know. And I hate that term, but it's true. And what I'm seeing coming to Joe and coming to me, is just, it's unacceptable. And I'm at the point where, you know, I really want to make a difference and I have the confidence in, in what I'm doing and I know where I want to get better with stuff. And when I see these kids, I'm, you know, Joe and I called out, I'm like, no, you know what? Cause PT, it's not, it doesn't cut it. This is unacceptable at six months. This should not be happening. This doesn't qualify. And you see the look on their face. And it's like, I'm sorry, but you got caught up in a bad system. We're going to fix this now. But if we could get this information out there and we get more coaches hearing it, more parents hearing it, we can make a difference and we could, we could start improving what's going on around here because kids want to play sports. They want to be active which is good. They don't, you know, they, we don't want to, you know, go the other way in the other direction where they're just becoming really sedentary and depressed. 
So we have, we have the ability to change this and make a difference. So why not do something like this where we get this information out and get people to try to listen to it, you know? I mean, when you're driving or whatever, you know, we try to put in the show notes where the different topics are so people can kind of dive in and hear about it. But the educational conversation is really where, where it is because people really don't know. A lot of what we talked about on here, I'll say to parents and, and kids and they're mind blown. They don't get it. It's just like, wow, are you serious? And I'm like, yes. So um, it, it's really a big deficit. And if we can really turn that around, that's, that's really where it comes from. And we're all, all accountable, even you know, my, my profession, you know, um, we really need to do a better job. And that's including myself. I've, I've revamped my treatment programs and the way I've done stuff by things I've learned from on these podcasts, from other podcasts, continuing ed courses, my own experience. And I'm like, you know what? This isn't working. Let go of it. Try this. Let's try that. You know? Uh, so we're trying to build this network um, where we could rely on these sources, where we know we have a, a situation. We could go here for a surgical perspective, here for another skill perspective, here for a nutrition perspective. And then we can provide the people with these resources and say, hey, check this person out, check this person out. So people feel like they they have a good safety net of where to go because a lot of people are lost with, with our, our healthcare system. They don't know where to go or what to do. Um, and they're just spending time and money just going around in circles. And honestly, it's not right. So we got to fix it. So yeah, that's our mission. A lot, there's a lot broken with our healthcare system, right? But yeah. and again, there's a lot of dense stuff in everything you just said, but yeah. unpack a little bit of it. I agree with you. Look, you always have to be learning. As a surgeon, I'm always learning. As an educator, I'm always learning. As a doctor, I'm always learning, right? Every aspect of my career, I'm always, I'm trying to learn all kinds of things. Because when I stop is when I'm not, I'm no longer doing the same service yep. to my patient. Yep. Yep. The other part to it is the collaboration part of it, right? You know, to tie it back into the military, I think it was Stanley McChrystal, right? Wrote the book, Team of Teams. You, you have to have your team and you have to understand your team. You have to empower your, the, the parts of your team. And so, yeah, there has to be collaboration and appropriate collaboration. You know, it, 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 everybody has to understand each other's skill set and respect it and, and be able to, you know, give people the, the uh, room to practice their craft in the right way. Um, and I'm still learning how to do that. But that's something that, you know, I picked up on when I was uh, in the military. It's, it's funny because, you know, as a military doctor, you go in and you think, oh, I'm just going to be a doctor. It's all I care about. But then as you start to see some of the military leadership qualities and yeah, start yeah. to learn some things about it, in my own perspective, I've started to think, yeah, maybe maybe there's something to that. Maybe mm -hmm. I need to pay attention to more than just being a doctor. Yeah. And, and I, it's carried over in the civilian side for me in that leadership sense. And the idea of, you know, team building and collaboration. And I think it's, it's to the patient's benefit. Absolutely. And again, this is, this is why we do this to, uh, to help answer the, the parent, the athlete question, uh, and, and to build an, an enormous network here of just knowledgeable resources. This is, it's amazing. So I'm humbled. I'm grateful. I appreciate your time. Mike, we have a special podcast coming on Friday afternoon with Trent Nestor, who you had talked about earlier, and we're going to talk a lot more about ACL recovery. But for tonight, I can't, again, thank you guys enough. We're out of here. Have a good night. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you guys having me. All right. T take care, Doc. Thanks. Good night. See you.